When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. All right, what I'm about to tell you. Now, you, you, you gotta swear you can't ever tell anybody this, Lucy. All right. Tom Cruise, still intense, even when he's whispering, in a clip from his new film, American Made. It's the true story of airline pilot Barry Seal, who in the 1980s found himself working for the CIA and a Colombian drug cartel. It's almost like his ego is writing checks his body can't cash. (laughs) Yeah, something like that, Josh. Along with a review of American Made, we'll talk Cruise's 35-year career with our top five Tom Cruise performances. That and more. Time to buzz the tower, Josh. Let's do it. Ahead on Film Spotting. When we started film spotting way back in 2005, Josh, Tom Cruise was a mere 25 years into his run as one of the most successful and reliable actor slash movie stars of his era. In those 12 years, he certainly has had his share of misses. The Mummy probably comes to mind, though in fairness, I didn't see The Mummy. I don't think you saw The Mummy. I have not caught up with so The Mummy. So can't really criticize it here, but... I've heard bad things. Now, there were also three more installments of the Mission Impossible franchise, three pretty good ones, actually, a couple Jack Reachers and Edge of Tomorrow. Is there really any modern actor who has had a comparable career to Cruz? Well, take into account he's been a consistent box office draw since his early 20s, also a three-time Oscar nominee at this point, and listen to the directors he's worked with, Scorsese, Spielberg, Kubrick, Michael Mann, and Paul Thomas Anderson. And Interesting, though, as I look at those names, I think, is Spielberg the only one he's worked with twice? Maybe. Could be. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm forgetting something there, a second pairing. But still, pretty impressive list of auteurs who he's made at least one film with. Absolutely. And we're going to get into this a little bit more, obviously get into Tom Cruise's career more as we share our top five Cruise performances a bit later. We're also going to hear more from Amy Nicholson, who is a fine critic who also wrote a book about Tom Cruise called Anatomy of an Actor. And there's an interview that I'm sure I'll bring up also later in the top five that she did around the time her book came out in 2014. And she addresses what we're speaking of here, Josh. She says that he has had a level of movie stardom that Brad Pitt, 
George Clooney, anybody you name, really hasn't matched because they've never had Cruz's string of hits. And even the movies of Cruz's that one might see as mistakes, they haven't actually been box office failures, unlike some of these other stars. So he really does seem to be on another level. So as we're talking here, Tom Hanks comes to mind, but I don't know if he got as young of a start, you know, noting that Cruz had hits right away in his 20s. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hanks was making what was maybe his first big Yeah, the man with film, one red shoe and possibly, stuff like that. Yeah, Splash so, was probably fairly popular. And he had to have been late 20s or maybe early 30s makes more sense for Hanks. Mm-hmm. So I think Cruz even has Hanks beat there. We will have more Cruz talk later with our top five Tom Cruise performances. But first... What has Cruise done for us lately? American Made, a based-on-fact CIA drama that reteams Cruise and his Edge of Tomorrow director, Doug Lyman. Top of your class in the Civil Air Patrol? Pilot like you shouldn't be flying buses. Welcome to Miami. Welcome to Bakersfield. Haven't you ever wanted something more, Barry? You should be serving your country. Your CIA. <sighs> Shh. We need you to deliver stuff for us. Oh, this is legal? If you're doing it for the good guys. Barry Seals, a goddamn genius! You are an airline pilot, Barry. That's how you support this family. This is gonna be good for us. Is this all legal? You trust me? No! Another fresh-from-the-press screening review for us, Adam. Are you getting used to these yet? We've had a couple in a (laughs) row here. Yeah, we used to do maybe three of these a year, and now we do them almost every week. It keeps us on our toes. That is true. Hey, at least you didn't have to talk about Mother 20 minutes after seeing it. Agreed. That fell to me and Michael Phillips. Yes, very convenient. I was about to ditch the strategy (laughs) after that one. Well, we did just leave American Made, the based-on-fact black comedy, maybe, that's how you could categorize it, mm-hmm. we can discuss, in which Tom Cruise plays Barry Seal. Seal was a commercial pilot recruited by the CIA in the late 70s, who then became willfully embroiled in deals involving the Medellin drug cartel, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, and Panama's General Noriega. There's more that we might get into. American Made is directed by Doug Lyman and written by Gary Spinelli. We were just trying to look up some of the source material Spinelli might have been working with, couldn't find that. So we're not quite sure what the filmmakers are working from here. The movie does have a fairly impressive supporting cast. Donald Gleason as SEAL's CIA contact and in much smaller parts, film spotting favorites Jesse Plemons and Lola Kirk. I think we can give them that designation. We probably both wish they had more to do here. But we anchored this show around Cruz. So let's start there. It would be a shame if we devoted the episode to him and he delivered a weak performance or even a mediocre one. Did we get either of those things or is this something special? I think it probably is among his finer performances. I think Cruz is really good here, and I think the movie's pretty good, too. Again, still processing it, but yeah, this movie did work for me. I think I got nervous early on with Cruz's performance because you pick up on the fact that he's working with an accent of some sort, kind of a Texas drawl. It's not overly pronounced, but it's there. Louisiana is where the movie begins. That's right. So around that area. And I lump Cruz into that movie star category where as much as I do appreciate his work as an actor, I think of him like a Pitt and some others who character acting isn't his thing. You know, don't, He's don't not give allowed him, in the accent no, room. Don't give him Adam, accents. Adam doesn't allow don't him Don't give there. him glasses. <laughs> don't give him funny things to do. Oh, I know. Oh, oh wait, I know. We're going to get to the top five. I know we are. 
I'm going to avoid those picks. You're probably <laughs> going to choose them, and it will work out nicely. But I think he settles into that accent. It was fine. It was never a distraction for me. And I think that the movie does capitalize on what makes Cruz a movie star. Everyone talks about that smile and that grin. Well, we do see it here. I don't think it's overemployed, but we definitely see it. And I think the way we see it and how we see it is important. It's usually when he's in the air which is what he's best at. He is, at his core, a pilot. So it's as if no matter what's going on and what the risk is or what he's doing that's illegal, he recognizes the adventure in this, and and he's having a good time, and his smile reflects that. I like the way they set up his character, that first flight. He is a TWA pilot, and he's bored, basically, in Mm -hmm. the air. Everyone's just settled in. It kind of reflects the idea of what the movie initially sets up, and we will probably talk about it this political and social malaise the country is feeling late in the 70s. Carter has made this speech. The film opens with that. And they're just kind of floating through the sky lackadaisically. And his co-pilots are all asleep. And he decides, I'm just going to add a little bit of turbulence just to make this a little bit more fun. So we get a sense right away what type of guy this is. And I love when he does meet Donald Gleason for the first time. This is early in the film when he's being recruited by the CIA. When Schaefer confronts him and basically lets on that he knows who he is, he knows he's been doing some smuggling, some low-level smuggling with cigars from Canada into the country, there's that pause where Barry clearly recognizes that he's been caught, that this guy probably does know what he's talking about. And I have expected him in that moment to say something to him like, who put you up to this? Or recognizing that someone might be playing with him a little bit. Instead, he embraces right away. You're from the CIA. Like, it's as if he's been waiting for this call his entire (laughs) life. He knew at some point the CIA would find him. So I I like the character. And like I said, I think Cruz and his natural charisma and his performance style match this character. I like the movie, too. I think it's a good film. I think Cruz is the best thing about it. Mm -hmm. And it does a wonderful job of setting up this character. So it almost does function, first and foremost, maybe it's not a black comedy. Maybe it's a comic character study. I just loved watching this guy get into the... Willful is... The key word, right? right? Willfully get into these situations. He He's the kind of guy who can't say no to a deal that's too good to be true. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't – he's a smart guy. We were just very briefly talking about it before we started recording here. And it's not that he's dumb. It's not that he doesn't see the risks. It's that he's the kind of guy who will take the chance while flying that commercial plane yes. to add a bit of turbulence for excitement. And he sees the money that's out there. And he sees the adventure mm-hmm. and he goes for it and he just can't resist it. And at the same time, what I really liked about this performance is that it's really relaxed yeah. for Cruz. I know there's intensity in that clip we played at the start, but I think you can also sense the enthusiasm. Sure. And there's a difference between the over-the-top Cruz intensity mm-hmm. where scenes can go haywire and the good intensity, which we'll probably get to in our top five. And here is something that's it's more enthusiastic, and this is a guy who's just laid back. Mm-hmm. He's letting these – what he sees as – opportunities of a lifetime fall in his lap and almost moving ahead too quickly into them. That's the key with that Mm -hmm. scene you're describing with Donald Gleason. He doesn't stop to really consider what else could be going on. Not at all. He's just like, I am all in. And he says that repeatedly, Mm -hmm. even though the stakes get higher, the risks get higher, the money gets higher, and he's still all in. And there's something both exhilarating to be alongside 
the character yeah. for that ride. And also, as we know, the hammer is going to come down. You know, you just feel that bearing down on the film as well. And I think Lyman does a really good job of putting this movie right at the level of enthusiasm mm-hmm. that Barry has yes. for all of this. So, you know, it's 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 in some ways, I don't know, breezily amoral as a picture considering all of these. I, I don't think this has like a ton of political bite to it, I guess is what I would say. It's not really revealing anything we haven't known hmm. or exposing any sort of corruption that's new. It certainly right. acknowledges that and recognizes it, but it's more aligned with Barry's perspective on all this, right? It, it's more just trying to put us in the headspace of this guy who, because of his personality, because of his skills, finds himself bouncing from one ridiculously dangerous and lucrative scenario to the next. Yeah, it's interesting what you say, because I don't think this movie is overly political either. And I was nervous after that intro, because it really is like a prologue. It's part of the credit sequence. It's detached from the film. It's not as if a character is watching Jimmy Carter on TV, which I probably in the moment would have welcomed more. This isn't happenstance. The director clearly chose to open the movie with this speech and to set the scene. And I thought, okay, we're probably going to get some speechifying here at some point. We're probably going to get some kind of grand moral transformation here. Spoiler alert, that doesn't really happen ever with this character. And when you say it's breezily amoral, I think that's really what the movie's strength is because in just sort of documenting it, and I don't mean it documents it like a documentarian would, though there is a lot of handheld camera and there is some VHS tapes and that type of technique that we see, it lays out an understanding of how the world works and how this type of system works. And one of the things that I scribbled in my notes as I watched this movie and I watched Cruz play Barry Seal was, is it worth it? I love that the movie, without putting too fine of a point on it, makes me as a viewer wonder if all of the risks he's taking and all of the work he's doing really is paying off in any kind of happier life. We've seen so many movies like this where someone gets caught up in these amoral, unethical schemes and they get in over their head and it becomes about excess, right? Whether it's drugs that they start taking, it's women, it's both, whatever. The most fun we ever see him have, like I said, is really when he's in the air mm-hmm. and then when he's at he a comes party. Home yeah, too. when he comes home. Yeah. and then Celebrates with his wife. He celebrates with his wife. He's sure he's with the Medellin drug cartel, but he is with his wife and that's the most fun he has. And he's not, as I said, really taken down by that excess. I think that the the message of these types of movies can often be very hypocritical because it basically says, don't be like him. Even as much as it glorifies that stuff. And what they're really saying, what the movie really says is, no, just don't get carried away. Don't get caught. Don't screw up. And I think this movie at least has the the soberness to say, no, this isn't about any excess that could have led to his downfall. It's just that the system is going to catch up with you. Eventually, there's an inevitability, I think, to this Barry Seal character that even he maybe seems to recognize not in a fatalistic way or a death wish kind of way, but just recognizing that when you get in with these kinds of people, things can go bad. And, you know, we see him buy a few toys, sure, but we never really get to see him using them. He buys his wife a really nice car, but he buys it for her. It's as if he is doing this because he does recognize the expectation on him to provide as a father, as a man, whatever that means. And his country is literally giving him these opportunities. Yeah. Why not take them? And I think the key image for me is all those suitcases full of money. When I said, is it worth it? 
how much fun is it to have all that money if honestly you're just burying it in the backyard and you just don't even have room for it all? That seems like more work than the work that oh, yeah, goes into to getting that point, the money. For sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, as far as those movies you're talking about that are hypocritical, they'll often have like really heavy punishment at the end. Yes. Right. Now we're all going to pay for yeah, our sins exactly. for, for the two hours we've been watching. And I don't think I don't think American Maid goes in that direction either. Uh, the relationship with his wife, who's played by Sarah Wright, I, I thought that was a nice touch. Me too. You can't say she's given a ton more to do than the wife role, but mm-hmm. I think she makes a lot of those scenes and their relationship definitely becomes a part of Barry's motivation, not necessarily a need. Like he's right. got a good career at the beginning with TWA. Extra pressure on him, As she really. points out, yeah. he's got health insurance. They're doing just fine. Mm-hmm. So let's be clear. He's not motivated out of, you know, this isn't like Breaking Bad, no. right? Where, no. where you're facing death's door and you're going to have to provide for your family. Um, but at the same time, these concerns do come into play. And here's just just to give you an idea of the witty construction of the film. I like that little mini montage where he comes home from trips. And I think we get like three in a row of him and his wife having sex. Then they cut right to a conversation with Donald Gleason, And he's saying, uh, you know, I, I'm going to need a raise here. I, yeah. I've got some more costs. Next cut is her giving birth. There you go. And it's, you know, that's just like in 10 seconds. Yeah. And it kind of interweaves the, the family and his decisions and what he gets caught up in, in a way that makes it stick where, mm-hmm. where other movies might not. And it also gives you an idea of the sense of humor that the film has. And also just to give a little more praise to the formal elements of the picture. There's some beautiful aerial footage here. I mean, we could talk later maybe about whether or not it equals Top Gun. I think it's in a very different <laughs> style what Lyman is going for here. But the it's almost an overexposed, really rich color when we get these scenes of him flying through these various Central American countries and the jungles mm-hmm. and over rivers. And I think, again, that's putting us in Barry's headspace. Like, we're this is really cool yeah. to be able to do this, to mm-hmm. land on these hidden airstrips. And uh, the cinematography adds a lot to that. Yeah, it definitely does. And I wanted to talk about him flying a little bit more because this is something I probably wouldn't have thought of. I'm not sure it would have occurred to me had it not been a case where I saw this movie right after finishing up my preparation for the top five. So I'm thinking about Tom Cruise all the time, and I'm writing down my notes, and I'm going through the different things that define him as an actor. There is that interview I'll mention, some of the stuff that Amy Nicholson has said. So that's all swirling around in my head. And then when you see a scene like the one where Cruise, I believe, is landing on that airstrip in Colombia, or maybe it's Nicaragua, but he's landing for the first time. And Lyman shoots it as a long take, where the camera is in the cabin of the plane with him. And we see the plane land from the moment it's approaching until it rolls up. We don't cut outside the plane until he's landed and the soldiers or the people on the ground are approaching. And I realized that Lyman's done two things there. One, he has put us in that cabin with him. Literally, we're experiencing kind of the the fear, but also the exhilaration as he makes that approach and lands and doesn't really know what he's in for. But then also there's a verisimilitude, right, where it does, if you think about it even for just a half second, you go, well, I don't see another pilot in the plane. And we never cut away from Tom Cruise. I wonder if Tom Cruise was really flying that plane. And Cruz is the type of actor, right, right, where he's always lauded for how hard he works for parts and the things he learns. And so I think it works cinematically, but it wouldn't surprise me 
for a second if Cruz actually learned how to fly these planes. And I think that's so important to this character that we feel that because he is so good as a pilot. As we've said, it is something that brings him joy. It's part of this adventure. If we didn't believe that Cruz in the air could really do this, then that would be a flaw with the movie. Is he in the Hollywood Flyers Club? We I don't got know. we got Harrison Ford, I think John Travolta, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I don't know who else. We'll have, we'll have to do a little more research into that. Yeah, I mean, and Cruz also gives you just enough of. I think this is distinctive, as I said, because it's mostly relaxed. But there are also little touches where he does just flash that smile, and one that I love comes later in the film. At this point, he's. I don't know, a double, triple agent, and the DEA has placed cameras in his plane to capture a delivery he's making. Right. And so he's bringing the subjects right into the plane, almost making them stand in front of the camera. And while they're looking down at something else, he kind of glances up yep. and, and flashes his <laughs> trademark smile. Yeah. And, it, you know, most cruise movies have that moment where he's both the character and then letting you know, yes, but I'm I'm also Tom. And maybe this is why we don't put him in the actor category, because he he mostly seems to not be able to resist giving us that moment where he's the character and he's Tom Cruise. Now, as we'll get into, I find very interesting his performances that play with that exact idea of when am I Tom Cruise, when am I the character, and when am I both at once and kind of deconstructing myself? Because I think <laughs> right. he actually does a lot of that. And there's some of that here in American Made that, mm-hmm. that I think does put it among his more interesting performances. I agree with you, and I agree with you about Sarah Wright as well in that relationship. This is a little bit of a different wife in these types of films that we've seen. There's a no-nonsense quality to her that I found really endearing and actually pretty comical. And some of my concerns beyond the politics at the beginning were also put aside like when we start getting montages of maps and political things are laid out, you worry a little bit that it's going to do too much of that. Now, for me, I do think this movie functions a little bit like my favorite movie of a few years ago, which you didn't like as much, The Big Short. I think it does a pretty good job without trying overly hard. It's really more about the character, but I think the movie does a pretty good job of making us understand actually the process of what happened with the Contras and the Sandinistas yeah, and the Medellin cartel. you're never cartel. confused. No, you're never really confused. I think the movie does lay that out without, again, kind of putting too fine of a point on it or trying to moralize in any way. So that's there. And then for me, another red flag often with movies is when I get the sense that It's just going to be a bunch of montages. And early on, there are a lot of them because it's spanning a few years. Mm -hmm. And this whole film is maybe, what, spanning only about four or five years. I feel like 78 to kind of 82 is maybe about as far as we get. Maybe it does go into the mid-80s. But it isn't spanning a huge swath of time, but enough that it does feel the need to compress it. And when you have that voiceover and it's telling that story— Sometimes the movie doesn't feel like a movie to me. I feel like I'm watching just a series of montages sure, yeah. and and a narrative doesn't really ever emerge. That doesn't happen here. I do feel like the narrative does and Lyman doesn't overuse that technique. Yeah, and I want to say too, you know, I, I mentioned that it's not politically biting, but I don't mean to say that it's toothless. I think there right. is some funny stuff as we get further in to the Reagan administration in mm-hmm. particular, some very clever use of Reagan clips, yeah. which yeah. I'm surprised movies haven't done more of. Mm-hmm. I, maybe I've missed some that have. Well, and but... it makes a connection that maybe I should have known, maybe we all should have known, but had never occurred to me before about just say no and yeah. that whole movement and how that actually might be connected to the Contras. Like, never would have thought of that. And yet there it is. Yeah. So it's so it does 
take aim and some shots where it can, but again, breezily. So I did appreciate that about it. Uh, since we're listing off a lot of the supporting performers, we should probably say that Caleb Landry Jones yeah. is again, always interesting on is screen. Again the creepy brother, <laughs> brother after Get Out. I yeah. mean, in a different way. And you're right. Like, you can't take your eyes off him. I think he's treading that line right now in his career where it's going to be, you know, Yes, this guy again too. Oh boy, here we go. This is going to be too much. So I'm, I'm holding out hope that he heads in the right direction. Yeah, I'm glad you said that about the politics and how they aren't toothless. I've kind of hinted at this or danced around it a little bit, but I think that the movie at least recognizes what Barry recognizes, which is you can exploit the system to get something from it or be exploited. Or maybe it's more accurate to say that you can exploit the system and be exploited. That that yeah. is going to happen. But that line that is said early in the film by Donald Gleason, sort of tongue-in-cheek ends up being the mantra for the whole film, which is, is this legal? Well, it's legal as long as you're working for the good guys. And I think what the movie suggests very clearly is that what that really means is it's legal as long as you're working for the people in power. Sure. And that's constantly good, in flux. The good guys always change. That's it. It's constantly in flux. So you have to be constantly adapting. And that's what Barry Seal is doing. And in a way, he's a patsy, right? For sure. And I like seeing Tom Cruise play that sort of character as well as instead of the guy who's, you know, has a comeback or exactly. is in charge from the beginning all mm-hmm. the way through. So I do think that's an interesting twist. Now, how did you feel about the way the movie ends because I feel like it takes it takes a pretty sudden jarring turn that I felt at least in the screening we were mm-hmm. in people didn't expect um, it's a little different than the tone that it had been setting mm-hmm. and at first I was like oh is that too much of a gotcha but here yeah what 25 minutes later I'm, I'm starting to like it a little bit I really more. like it yeah, yeah. I, I think for me I felt that inevitability of it, even though I didn't know exactly where it was going. I had no idea. I was curious to look up afterwards where Barry Seal is now and what his fate was. I really had no idea. And yet I felt an inevitability that the movie understands and that character understands so that by the time we do get to that little bit of a finale, it didn't shock me at all. And I think it was really effective. Yeah. And I think it lands right as well, because stylistically, Lyman does something interesting where we're suddenly taken, I'll just say, outside of Barry's head. Right. Um, and, and before, I think you hinted at it, that there are these VHS recordings he's making where he's talking directly to the camera. So we're very much attuned to mm-hmm. him. And there's a switch in perspective in the movie's final moments that that I agree. I think it, I think it lands really well, very effective. American Made opens in wide release this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Before we get to our top five cruise performances, we'll hear from listeners weighing in on his career via our poll question. When did you stop taking Tom Cruise for granted? Spoiler, far and away, which I forgot existed, gets a vote. Nice. Stay with us.
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Every leap of civilization was built off the back of slaves. Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. Welcome back to Film Spotting. You know, Josh, hearing that clip, it makes me think my least favorite part of all the hoopla that's going to surround Blade Runner 2049 is hearing the stories of how Jared Leto got so into his character and his performance that he actually created replicants. Is he still playing I bet the he Joker pulled it here? Off. I bet he pulled it off. It sounds like he might be playing the villain in Blade Runner 2049. The Denis Villeneuve-directed sequel starring Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford opens next weekend, and we gave the original the sacred cow treatment about a month ago. Turns out it holds up. It's a sacred cow, and we'll have a review of its sequel on next week's show. Are you more or less excited for this now that I'm going to tell you what I found out today? Maybe you already know. Two hours, I think, like 45 oh, minutes. Two hours, oh, 45 minutes for this thing. I think thing. 162 yeah. or 164, and yeah. of course, that immediately makes me very, very <laughs> weary and wary. Weary. <laughs> weary and wary, Josh. Yes, makes sense. Well, this seemed to help with the number of entries we received on our last Massacre Theater it was Rocky Horror Picture Show a couple weeks back, giving listeners another option to hear it. I don't know. This kind of feels like punishment to me. They I should agree. really have a week off. I agree. Those others were at least somewhat fun. And, well, your performance was somewhat fun. I don't know about me. We heard from Chris in Albuquerque echoing, well, echoing what a lot of listeners said about my performance. But I think, at least based on the emails I've seen, he just put it the most eloquently. Absolutely stunning upset that Josh's mimicking of blanks and comprehensible dialect came across as several orders of magnitude more naturalistic than Adam's performance as someone who'd been washing down horse tranquilizers with malt liquor. Let's hear what that sounds like. It's not the same caravan. It's not the same part. It's twice the effing size of the last one. Twice, twice the size. And my mom still needs a caravan. I like to look after my mom. It's fair to Take it. I can't argue. So... You know, you've long used horse tranquilizers. Yes. While, it relaxes while doing me. the show. I but get a little I, amped up. Didn't for I the tell show. you the malt liquor was going to be putting it over the <laughs> Bad edge? Bad combination. I should have listened to you, Josh. Now, if you do somehow recognize that scene, very fine performance by you Thank there, you. Josh. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net with the movie's title along with your name and location, and you might just be picked randomly out of the hat on an upcoming show. I know that you did just recently get back from North Carolina. An appearance at the Foot Candle Film Festival was North Carolina as lovely as it sounds, Josh. It was absolutely lovely. Hickory, North Carolina. And I got a chance to meet Chris Fry, Alan Jackson. These are the two who started the Foot Candle Film Society. They tell me they were inspired by the show. Really? So, yes. Not not Chattahoochee Alan Jackson, the country singer, but a different Alan no, Jackson. No, pretty sure this was another guy. Okay. Yeah, and they've that society has grown enough where they've been able to put on this festival for the last couple of years and invited me out to speak at it. It was a lot of fun. Great group of people, super passionate about movies. They showed like 33 films over three days. I think I saw four of them. 
and a group of shorts. So just want to say thanks to Chris and Alan again. Also, pass along here. I'm tossing this at you. Wow. A uh, Foot Candle Film Festival t-shirt. Love it. That they wanted me to make sure you got. And if you are around the Hickory, North Carolina area, about an hour away from Charlotte. This is nice, great. huh? If you live nearby, check out the Foot Candle Film Society. They show something about, I think it's once a month, discussion afterwards that Chris and Alan lead. They did discussions after every one of the screenings at the festival, which were really good because it's a passionate group of folks out there. Well, give us a little bit of that Larson magic. Give us just 10 seconds of that that wisdom you imparted to all the festival goers. I think it was about a 10-second speech, <laughs> now that you mention it. <laughs> Kept it brief. Okay. Well, that's probably a good idea. We did want to share a little bit of listener feedback, especially as it ties in nicely with the latest release from our sister podcast, Film Spotting SVU. That's Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit with Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore. They got back from TIFF and they share on their recent show the highlights from the Toronto Film Festival. And we heard from Jordan in Boston, who also made it to TIFF. We used to get there occasionally. Doesn't happen so much with our schedules anymore. But he wanted to share a couple of films that he thinks we should keep our eyes peeled for. He thinks they'd be prime golden brick contenders or just because they're great. So we'll give you a couple of those titles that Jordan recommends. And then you can listen to Film Spotting SVU and see if there's any overlap. One of the films is The Writer. Chloe Zhao's second feature was raved out of Cannes and is getting a release from Sony Pictures Classics. So it should be released by the end of the year. A portrait of the American West that feels so different from what we're used to seeing, probably thanks to her use of unprofessional actors, absolutely blew me away. There's also Western, another movie that plays off of tropes of the traditional Western but is set in Bulgaria as a group of German construction workers struggle to find a community in a land that decades earlier they had raided, plundered, and conquered. You won't see a more incisive examination of prejudice this year. Jordan also recommends Zama, says, obviously you'll want to seek this one out because of Lucretia Martel director of The Headless Woman and La Cienega of our new Argentine cinema marathon. It's so narratively jarring and different than anything I've seen her do that I'm not sure it'd become any clearer after multiple viewings. That said, I think it's her most ambitious striking work and dare I say her masterpiece. Hmm. Lady Bird, written and directed by Greta Gerwig. I think we had this in our fall movie preview, Adam, but it gets Jordan's seal of approval. It's as great as you've heard, he says, and Saoirse Ronan is a comedic revelation. Hope you're able to give this one a full review on an upcoming show. Maybe we can do that. It opens here in Chicago on November 17. Jordan's last recommendation is Hannah. 90 minutes of Charlotte Rampling contemplating her existence. I'm in. Baking and frosting cakes. Okay. Petting her dog. Even better. And having breakdowns in restrooms across Paris. Well, it is Charlotte Rampling. If you're not sold, I'm not sure you should consider yourself a cinephile. Jordan notes that he just realized four out of the five movies that he listed were directed by women. So great. We do thank you, Jordan, for those picks. Lady Bird, not only for sure opening in Chicago in November, but I hate to throw things out there that aren't signed, sealed, and delivered, but very good chance there's already been some conversation. Greta Gerwig is going to be in studio and I'm going to talk to her. In studio. In studio, we're going to play my interview with her nice. on a November episode. Yeah, you've really had a good exciting. run of interviews. So. Yeah, it's been fun lately. For more on TIFF, as I said, please do subscribe to Film Spotting SVU or just go to filmspottingsvu.com. They share their lowlights and their highlights, as well as a listener's choice review of Christian Munju's graduation, which is currently available to stream on Netflix. We 
really want to see this movie because we're fans of Munju yeah. from four months I'm just into two learning days. this now. Right, so that it's on Netflix. Why am I not watching this now instead, instead of, of sitting here? Sitting here. Exactly. But we love that film. We liked his follow-up Beyond the Hills. I know this was on some most anticipated lists that we've done. And now we don't have an excuse because it's streaming on Netflix. It does, for me, fall into that category of movie I can't wait to see that I'm dreading to see. Just well, because sure. you know it's going to be... It's going to be heavy. It's going to ring you out. Yeah. So I'll have to gird my loins, Josh, and get ready for graduation. Tell me, tell me you like my hat. You're not wearing a hat. Say it. Say you like my hat. You're not wearing a hat. Say it. Why can't you say it, Shannon? Why can't you say you like my hat? Why can't you say you like my suit? I've earned this. Wow. Speaking of terrible accents, thank you for that transition, Sam Van Halgren. We do like your hat, Irish Tom Cruise, we promise. He's there with Nicole Kidman in that scene from the Ron Howard-directed Irish immigrant drama, Far and Away from 1992. I was working at a movie theater in my hometown in 1992. And still didn't see it. That movie played... I had to walk around the theater many times and tell people to stop talking or put their feet down. I bet you were sweep really up good at that job. Well, my boss had high expectations. <laughs> <laughs> I was draconian about feet and talking, Josh, as it should be. I can imagine. But I never did sit down at no? any point and watch all of Far and Away. I can't remember if I've ever seen all of Far and Away. I remember being aware of it. Like, yeah. it was a big deal when yes. it came out. So I was probably interested. I would imagine I saw it. Really? I just can't say for No sure. recollection No recollection. Well, we are getting to our top five cruise performances here in just a bit. But we wanted to give listeners a chance to chime in with their thoughts on the actor. A couple of weeks ago, as we were anticipating our review of American Made in this top five, we asked you, when did you stop taking Tom Cruise for granted? We're going to hear some feedback, Josh, whether we like it or not, on how we might have phrased that just a little bit better. But first, the options we gave you. Was it 1987 or earlier, 1997 or earlier, 2007 or earlier, 2017 or earlier, or it hasn't happened yet? You're still not on board with Tom Cruise as an actor. We did give you a few of the titles that go with each period. So in that span of kind of 87 to 96, 97 to 2006, and so on. And Josh, you will share the results now. In last place. Okay. 2017 or earlier. So we're thinking Tropic Thunder, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, and Rogue Nation and Edge of Tomorrow. Second to last place with 10% of the vote. Last place got 9% of the vote. So pretty close here. But 10% of the vote went to 1987 or earlier. So Risky Business, Top Gun, and Color of Money. Then we have 1997 or earlier, receiving 17% of the vote. We're talking Born on the 4th of July, A Few Good Men here. Then with 22% of the vote, hasn't happened yet. So some holdouts, mm -hmm. not convinced of Tom Cruise, but winning. 42% of the vote went with 2007 or earlier. And you can see why. Magnolia, Eyes Wide Shut, Minority Report, and Michael Mann's Collateral, all in that era. Yeah, not a big surprise there. That's probably what I would have guessed. I don't think I would have guessed that hasn't happened yet finished no. second. But we should dwell on the positive here as Tom Cruise fans, I suppose. That does mean that 78% of the people who voted are on board with Tom Cruise. Right, but 22%. Seems like a large number to me in terms of still not appreciating his work. Now, 
we mentioned that the phrasing of the question caused some confusion, and who knows, maybe that would have changed how the results came out, Josh. Here's a sample. Joe Johnson said, Interview with a vampire is actually what did it for me. However, I didn't see it until 2008, so the wording of this poll has me confused. Do I vote 1997 or earlier because Interview was released in 1994, even though I didn't see it until 2008? Do I vote 2017 or earlier because I didn't see Interview until 2008 and the cutoff for the other entry is 07? No, I think, My head hurts. Yeah, I, I think we're complicating things here. You, you go by the era it was released. The era it was released, yeah. not the movie. Yeah. We were trying to come up with another way of asking what you love about Tom Cruise, maybe what performance is your favorite, without just outright asking you what Tom Cruise performance is your favorite. So it really was supposed to be about the time period in which you discovered him. So we were on the same page anyway. I'm glad that the two people asking the question knew what the hell we were saying. No one else listening seemed to. We even heard from a listener, Jonathan Dembski, in New York City, who made his picks. Rain Man was really the movie for him, along with the first Mission Impossible. But he suggested we should have phrased it, which era of Tom Cruise performances won you over. Yeah, we Might probably could have done it better. And we'll add Jonathan to the ever-growing list of people we should consult yes. before we throw a poll question out there. I think this is just becoming part of the fun of the show now that we are inevitably going to screw this part up. We do have some more listener feedback on the cruise poll that we think is worth sharing. Our first note comes from Eric Houter. I was 14 years old when I first saw Top Gun. Strangely, it was still playing in first-run theaters when the VHS tape became widely available for $14.99. My buddy and I watched the film on a giant screen, then walked straight to Kmart and got the tape. The VHS copy became our holy text for that summer, both worshipped and studied. I never looked back, regardless of Cruz's occasional missteps over the years. He remains, for me, the ultimate movie star. And I know when settling down in the theater to watch a Cruz film that I have about a 90% chance of enjoying it, a 70% chance of loving it, and a 50% chance that I am about to watch a flat-out classic. Hmm. Not bad, Tom Cruise. Aaron Teachman in D.C. I pulled up Cruz's full filmography, trying to figure out what I would have known of Cruz leading up to Magnolia, and there is one film that stares at me from that list, the film that completely changed my perception of Cruz. 1992's Far and Away. There it is. Aaron's the one. At that point, I would have seen Top Gun and Rain Man and known about Cocktail, Risky Business, and Days of Thunder. But then here was this actor who had always played some kind of slick, swaggering, hyper-modern guy, and he's doing a period piece, a friggin' romance movie with farming. And I loved it. I was always ready for Cruise to be good after that. We also heard from Michael Loker in San Leandro. San Leandro? Formerly El Cerrito. Yeah, Michael, I was going to say, moved. I almost, that's why I almost stumbled over the city. I'm yeah. so used to it. I voted for 1997 or earlier, Michael says. By that point, he'd muscled his way through a diverse litany of demanding, emotionally realistic lead roles with tons of screen time. He'd made A Few Good Men and Born on the Fourth of July. If you could watch those films and still dismiss Little Tommy as a pretty boy in a jet fighter, you're a much crueler judge of the craft of acting than I am. We also heard from Philip Schmidt. Eyes Wide Shut showed that he was willing to take huge risks and even be flat-out unlikable. He turned his own best assets, charm, and that 1,000-watt smile against himself. There's a scene Late in the night where he's driving over a bridge and his electric cruise smile is first charming, then sinister, then completely unhinged. All in one fluid facial gesture. It showed remarkable self-awareness. This is a guy who could have played it safe and continued to cash action movie paychecks for life. Though my real answer is that I stopped taking him for granted the moment I saw him lip-sync battle Jimmy Fallon. 
Another Eyes Wide Shut mention here from Billy Ray Bruton. While I don't recall ever taking Tom Cruise for granted, it was the one-two punch of Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia that made me realize just how much of a risk-taker Cruise was. He'd later take this to new and sometimes ridiculously stupid heights with his stunt work, but Cruise was always willing to jump in and give it his best shot, even when numerous people were criticizing him. You can't really take many Cruise performances and say he was miscast, even when he seems an unlikely fit. He makes it work. I've always thought he was the hardest working actor in the business and still do. Corey Kraft in Birmingham, Alabama, Roll Tide, says Magnolia was a major part of my awakening as a cinephile and might still feature his all-time best performance. Add to the mix collateral and minority report and you have a period of work any actor would be envious of. It's a stretch of performances so good that, if anything, the broad blockbuster stage he's on now is a sad step back. How does Grinnell feel about that Roll Tide, Adam? (laughs) My alma mater. Kinda, yeah, yeah, you kind of took mean, me aback there. Actually, my my Hawkeyes probably would be more disappointed than ah, me, Josh. That, but that's true. You have to say it. You just have to say it every time someone mentions Birmingham. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. I'm, I'm decreeing that here. Great. On the show. We have one last little bit of cruise feedback we wanted to share here, a voicemail that comes to us from Josh in Long Beach, California. Hey, Adam and Josh. Josh Baszler calling from Long Beach, California, and I'm calling to weigh in on the Tom Cruise poll. Uh, I've been on board with Tom Cruise since the very beginning of his career. I always thought he was really a, one of the truly great movie stars. Perhaps not the greatest actor, if your definition is someone who will disappear into a role or become a completely different person in a certain performance. But Cruise, similar to someone like Cary Grant, for example, most often plays a varying degree of himself, uh, but what makes him great is kind of that screen magnetism that he has and an emotional truth and vitality that he brings to each scene, no matter what he's working on. That combined with his famously insane work ethic and his rarely erring instinct on quality projects and collaborators are reasons that I've been on board with Cruz since the risky business days, really. Uh, thanks, guys, and uh, keep up the good work. Love the show. So that Cary Grant comparison that Josh makes there, probably apt? I like it, yeah. My, my instinct is to say slow down a little bit uh, on the <laughs> Cary Grant thing. Just Maybe just because if I had a choice, I'm watching Cary Grant any day. Sure. Over Tom Cruise, I okay. think. But, you know, maybe he'll get there. Okay, well, Tom Cruise probably couldn't pull off the dialogue in His Girl Friday and the comic timing of that. But Cary Grant, despite what you see North by Northwest, I don't think he's doing the rock climbing in Mission Impossible 2. So, you know, we all have our limitations, Josh. A lot of running in that cornfield, Adam. (laughs) Good point. Good point. Maybe they they really are connected. (laughs) Well, enough about Cruise for the moment as we get to our new poll question. And you might be hearing this at the beginning of October thinking, why are they asking us a Halloween-related question? Well, We won't get into all the scheduling, but by the time we share the results to this poll question, it will be Halloween. So with that in mind, we want to know what you think is the best horror movie of the last decade. So 2007 to 2017 is the span here. We're going to give you the options in chronological order. And this kind of goes back to a top five we did when It Follows came out. It Follows is going to come up here in a moment, but that was reviewed on the show. And I think In conjunction with that, we shared our top five 
21st century horror movies. And so I wasn't we shared, there for that one. Okay. So yeah. that was a Michael and me show, I yeah, believe. Yeah, very, very sad to have missed that one. Mark Harris, the great writer, joined us for the It Follows conversation and actually may have been part of the top five. I can't completely remember, but we will link to that top five in our show notes. There will be one or two overlaps here, I think, from that list. But again, that goes back to the start of the century here in the year 2000. We're just covering here the last 10 years, Josh, the options are. We're going to start with Paranormal Activity in 07. Let the Right One In and The Orphanage are both from 2008. The Cabin in the Woods came out in 2012. The Conjuring, It Follows, The Babadook, The Witch, Get Out, and It rounds out our options. We will have the option of other as well. Now, I got to say, I wasn't involved in selecting all these titles, and we've been getting a lot of crap for previous poll questions. This is a good list. You think we did this okay? Is, this is really hard. I'm just looking at these so now. So Sam and I, we can pat ourselves on oh, yeah. our backs at least until listeners start responding. Yeah. I, I, hey, I approve. Okay. What more do you need, Adam? <laughs> Don't make a me lot. answer that, I can Josh. see by your face a lot. <laughs> but no, how would you vote? I, well, I'm thinking about this. I think every one of these films on this list, on my site, I, I've given three and a half out of four stars to. Maybe The Conjuring might be three, but I'd like that quite a bit as well. Okay, so... I want to. Here's where I, I'm falling. This is the tough choice. Paranormal activity. I really want to go with just because I feel like it's undersung and and flat out dismissed by a lot of people. The orphanage is the scariest one on this list, hands down for me. Okay. So I want to go that way. Uh-huh. Get out. You know, I'm just still riding on the high of Get mm-hmm. Out because it's so recent. So there's a bias there. It's for me. It's down to those three, but there's not a bad option on this list. Even it, which you know, I, I think I did rate a little less than that. I still think it was a good film. So right. strong contenders here. Yeah, I could see getting some criticism for even including it. It's so recent and maybe doesn't belong in the conversation with some of these other newer classics. At the same time, a lot of articles here over the past couple of days. In fact, Michael Phillips in the Tribune just wrote about it, about how it has actually become, depending on how you phrase or define horror and what list you look at, it's become the highest grossing horror movie of all time. It actually passed The Exorcist. Now, Box Office Mojo has another list that they call supernatural horror films. And so that changes the criteria mm. a little bit versus their other list, which is R-rated horror films. So, for example, Get Out is actually like number three on the R-rated horror films, but it's not on the Supernatural list at all, okay. I don't think. And The Sixth Sense is actually the movie that's number one on the Supernatural sure. horror film list. And so, again, it's all about how you define horror. I probably don't think of The Sixth Sense as a horror movie either. It's not designed to scare you. If I think about the moments from that movie that really unnerve me, there is that moment where I think they're at the schoolhouse and he sees yeah. the dead man who's been hanging. There's, there's moments that unnerve me, but I don't think that's what Shyamalan's after with the film. I think it's horror. I'd put it in horror. Okay, well, and then a movie like Signs comes up and it will appear on lists and other ones it won't. But if you go by that supernatural list anyway, Paranormal Activity was number nine. The Conjuring was number six. And then It did pass The Exorcist for number two behind The Sixth Sense. I do want to say this about my beloved Exorcist. And most people who have written these articles have pointed this out, if not all of them, that that number is not adjusted for inflation and it has made something like $500 million to date or something. But... When you adjust for inflation, The Exorcist made $1.2 billion. Well, that's strange. I, I thought they usually do for these I did rankings, too. adjust for inflation. I did too. That's why I thought there's no well, in my way. my mind, everything we've just talked about is meaningless. Is meaningless. <laughs> and but yet, you know what? You could say that for a headline. many episodes. <laughs> well, we want to know what you think. I really am eager to see how this one comes out, Josh. And for me, I think that's my answer. 
you said it, the scariest one here that also might be for me the best film here is The Orphanage. So that's getting my vote. Let the Right One In would be in close competition, but that's a film that doesn't scare me. It doesn't make me shiver quite the way The Orphanage does, even though I do love that film. So let us know what you think. Vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave some feedback in the poll, and we certainly hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Well, Tom Cruise's foray into horror or supernatural horror, I'm not sure where you'd put Interview with the Vampire, is that going to make our list of his best performances? The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. Hey, Adam and Josh. This is Jason Eakin out here in sunny Los Angeles. Give me a call about Top 5 Tom Cruise performances. I'm going to go with the classic Film Spotting cheat on this one and say his best performance is all of 1999. That gives you Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia. And I'm sorry, I, I don't think there's better Tom Cruise grinning. There's a little bit of Tom Cruise running, and there's also some Tom Cruise clapping, the intense clap of anger and pain. Uh, it's also when he's at his most dynamic, his most vulnerable, um, and his most powerful for me, particularly at the end of Magnolia. So that's my pick for the best Tom Cruise performance of all time. Keep up the great work. Have a good one. Bye. You look like a perfect fit. A girl in need of a possible good could come from putting Jessup on a stand. He told Kendrick to order the code red. He did? That's great. Why didn't you say so? And of course, you have proof of that. Oh, I'm sorry. I keep forgetting. You were sick the day they taught law at law school. You put him on the stand and you get it from him. Oh, we get it from him. Yes. No problem. We get it from him. Colonel Jessup, isn't it true that you ordered the code red on Santiago? Listen, we're all a little... Eh, I'm sorry, your time's run out. What do we have for the losers, Judge? Well, for our defendants, it's a lifetime at exotic Fort Leavenworth. And for defense counsel Kathy, that's right, it's a court-martial! Yes, Johnny! That was Tom Cruise. Oh boy, was that Tom Cruise. And I just knew that this had to be the clip that we played going into this top five, our top five Tom Cruise performances, because... A few weeks ago, I was just flipping channels late at night. A few good men came on. It's on TBS or TNT, those channels all the time. Mm -hmm. And I don't usually stop to watch it, but I stopped it on this scene. And watching Tom Cruise as Daniel Caffey just absolutely go bonkers. I mean, just become completely unhinged. Yeah. 
it, it mesmerized me, frankly. <laughs> well, and of course, is... then I had to watch Jessup and I had to watch the courtroom scenes and see how it all played out all over again. And I just thought it would be a perfect setup. Maybe we'll get to some performances here, Josh, in our top five that are less unhinged. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I said something in our American Made review about when his intensity gets a little too cranked up. That's what we have here. I think we do. Now, I'm sure you'll have some setup and you'll tell us how you formed your list, but I wanted to kick things off with an excerpt, a brief bit from the aforementioned book by Amy Nicholson, who I didn't actually discover this until I'd already formed my list, but then I was able to go back and add a note or two to some of my comments. And she published this book, The Anatomy of an Actor, Tom Cruise, Anatomy of an Actor, back in 2014. Amy, probably if you follow Film Spotting, you know Amy Nicholson. She is on the Canon podcast, and she's formerly the film critic for MTV and LA Weekly. And we are going to hear from Amy Nicholson here as we get through this top five, but we're going to hear from her in prose form as I haven't read her book yet, but an excerpt was published over at RogerEbert.com when it was published. And Amy writes this, Cruz himself has earned three Oscar nods and lost. Therein lies the great paradox of his career. In the three decades since losing it, he's become and remained the box office's biggest international star. Globally, his films have scored over $8 billion. Though he's adored by audiences and the most talented directors of his generation, one thing continues to elude Tom Cruise. Respect. He's been a Nazi, a paraplegic, an assassin, a redneck, a car salesman, a samurai warrior, and a drunk. He's played vampires and hustlers and Irishmen and elves. Despite his efforts, Tom Cruise's image hasn't changed. He's still misread as a one-note hero who relies on his charm, even though his characters haven't grinned in a decade. Never has an actor been so closely watched. Here's the line I love, Josh. Never has an actor been so closely watched, yet so rarely seen, so successful while still struggling for recognition. In this process of forming your top five list, Josh, did you see Tom Cruise? Yeah, I mean, I think it, this kind of goes back to our poll question. Like we were, we're asking when did those of us who give do him appreciate respect. him get to that point? So I think personally, I was already there, but I do think Amy's book kicked off a reappreciation of him. Yeah, I that's remember fair. a lot of conversation, and I think we were actually talking about what movie was that. We felt like we were coming to this list a little late. Like people had done their appreciation of Tom Cruise maybe two years ago or so, and we couldn't quite identify mm-hmm. what movie that was hooked on. But now I'm thinking it was probably Amy's book yeah. that really kicked a lot of that off. Yeah, I think the book was a big part of it, and I think it coincided with the release of Rogue Nation. It was around that time, 2014, 2015, but she stopped at Ghost Protocol. That's when she was writing the book. So it was up to Ghost Protocol that she covers. And if you want to read that excerpt, we will link to it in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. So I did come into this top five as a fan already, you know, uh, open to Cruise, maybe still underappreciated him a little bit because I hadn't taken the time to sit down and look at the entire filmography. Um, it was also fun to put together on Facebook and Twitter with listeners. We got a lot of participation on this one, so there is a ton of enthusiasm for him out there. We've been a little more intentional lately about using hashtags for our lists, yes. and we did Top 5 Tom Cruise for this one. And Please it use got it. a ton of feedback from people, including Immaterial Mike. He's at Michael Bayer 1. He said, Cruise is one of the only huge movie stars we have left. The guy just seems to love making movies, and I love watching the movies he makes. And that was helpful to me because it resonated with what I do enjoy and have enjoyed about him for a long time is the sense of joy that you get in his performances. And I think what's crucial about that is, for me at least, it offsets the cockiness. 
where and that was something that came later and maybe that's why I'm more in that 90s era because his first era was just pure 100% cockiness, right? Mm-hmm. That he managed to pull off. And then it started to get tempered a little bit by some experimentation, but also some joy in being a movie star. And so those two things balanced and both are in play in a lot of my picks here. So I'll start with my number five. And it's actually a recent performance. It's Edge of Tomorrow. I do think that until its ending, which I'd say wimps out a little bit. This uh, alien invasion flick is all about the deconstruction of Tom Cruise, action star. He's not the super suave savior here. He's a weasel. He's this military officer who who looks the part, but he's actually this ex-ad man who's now found himself in this cushy position in military PR. Near the start of the film, when he's ordered by a superior, played by Brendan Gleeson, to accompany a planned assault of the alien forces on the shores of France, he tries to weasel out of it. I'm sorry, the first wave the beach, you mean the front? France. Satellites show minimal enemy movement on the coast. Little resistance. Little exciting something to tell your grandchildren. I appreciate the confidence, General. I do this to avoid doing that. (laughs) I, I, I was in ROTC in college. The war broke out. I lost my advertising firm. And here I am. You know, I do what I do, and you, you do what you do. But I'm not a soldier, really. So Cruz gets sent to the front anyway, and then the movie becomes this meta-commentary on the star's relentless, indomitable, can-do attitude. He dies pretty quickly in battle, but then finds himself alive again, forced to go back into battle, live, die, repeat, as the movie's known now. And it's also just this idea of the unstoppable, ever-youthful Tom Cruise, right? But this time it's something of a curse. Now, as I mentioned, the the climax of the movie does get more conventional. Cruise gets more heroic. But until then, it's really this fascinating performance of self-critique and meta-commentary. I think you could almost argue that the only other film where he pokes a hole in his inherent cockiness to this degree might be his supporting part in Magnolia. Very different performance, Mm -hmm. but... At least from his vantage point, I think there might be something similar going on there. Yeah, that's a great pick. I do enjoy that movie quite a bit. And I enjoy most of his movies quite a bit. We talked about this two weeks ago with the poll question. We've talked about it a little bit now. And even at the beginning of the show when we were saying how successful he's been as an actor, yes, at the box office, never really having any gigantic failures, but also in terms of the number of quality filmmakers he's worked with. It's an impressive list. And I counted up all the movies he's made to date, counting American made 42 releases. I've seen 74% of them. I don't know where you would stand with that, Josh, but that's probably my highest percentage for any actor who's made over 40 movies, maybe even over 25 or 30. They're just often films that slip through the cracks. And with Crew so far, it's only 11 of those. And if you look at the 31 that I've seen, only three of them, I think, just for purposes of simplifying this, I'd consider bad. Rock of Ages, Austin Powers in Gold Number, which I don't even remember him showing up in. I had no idea he was in that. Yeah. Or so forgotten, at least. I don't even know if that counts. And then the Cameron Crowe misfire, Vanilla Sky. Mm. After that, I was mixed on War of the Worlds. I didn't love that Spielberg movie, but I wouldn't consider it a bad film. And Mission Impossible 2, I haven't seen since it came out in 2000. I do consider it to be, as many do, the worst of all the films in the MI franchise, but it's 
also not a horrible film directed by John Woo. So there's a pretty good batting average there. And speaking of those Mission Impossible movies, for number five, I'm actually going with his performance as Ethan Hunt. And I could just cheat and say, well, really, it's the same performance across all five movies. So it's him playing that character. Mission Impossible 3, which was directed by Abrams, which I do like quite a bit more than most people do, at least when I see these rankings of the MI movies, that did try to personalize him a little bit more or humanize him, make him an actual living, breathing man Mm -hmm. in the world, separate from being Ethan Hunt, the world's greatest spy. And I like that aspect, even though I know that doesn't work for some others. But he's essentially the same character through all of these films. If I had to pick just one, I would go with the original, the Brian De Palma original, his performance in that film, even though I'd rank it at minimum third in the series, and I'd probably rank it fourth even behind MI3. The scene I'm going to point to, Josh, is probably one of the more famous ones in the movie where he is having that conversation with Kittredge, the head of the CIA or kind of one of his bosses. And De Palma's using those canted angles, those really tight close-ups, and he is discovering... Ethan Hunt is discovering that essentially this whole mission, this mission that went terribly wrong, where he's the only one, it seems, who has survived at this point, it was really just a mole hunt. It was put on by the CIA to discover a traitor in their midst. So all these people died, and for what? And we see that kind of trademark smoldering intensity as that camera is fixated on his face. The anger is brewing. That tight shot can barely contain his fury at losing his team, the people he cared for. And there's another element that comes through as well that I think you can trace through a lot of his characters. There is a bit of self-righteousness about that character. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of Cruise characters where they either start that way, they're convinced that they have some kind of moral authority or that they're doing things the right way and others aren't, or they start out pretty cavalier and have no real direction and have to come to some kind of moral reckoning. But we see that righteousness and that righteous indignation in Ethan Hunt's character and Watching it again, you really do see Cruz capture and express a lot of emotions at once. There is that anger I mentioned towards the CIA. There is, I think, sadness coming through, thinking about the people that he lost. There's fear or at least recognition of the fact that he's now a target and he has to get out of here. And then there's that just sense of being perplexed at the fact that if this really was a mole hunt and he knows he's not the mole as he's being accused of being, then who is? I can understand you're very upset. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. All right, Hunt. Enough is enough. You have bribed, cajoled, and killed, and you have done it using loyalties on the inside. You want to shake hands with the devil? That's fine with me. I just want to make sure that you do it in hell. So his head is really spinning in this scene, and Cruz captures all of that, and as that tension builds and builds and builds... And finally, that explosion as he makes his escape. What do we get, Josh, so gloriously? Cruz running. Cruz just jumping through the glass and running at high speed through, I think, the streets of Vienna at this point, maybe Paris. But he takes off through those streets as the water recedes behind him. And it's Cruz doing what Cruz does best. Yeah, and it's the combination, right? It's it's doing that intimate stuff at first and then being able to combine it with the physicality that, that makes him an action star. Yep. Uh, that, that's, that is what makes him so good. All right, my number four, I'm a little nervous about this now based on uh, some things you said earlier in the show, but I'm going with Tropic Thunder here. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad putting, you are. I'm putting it on the list. I, I am generally a fan of dramatic actors, big stars. 
trying their hand at broad comedy. It doesn't always work out, you know, a little hint again for Massacre Theater. Sometimes things go awry, but that's what Cruz is doing here. And he's got this cameo as a studio executive slash fascist dictator, Les Grossman. It's beautiful to behold. I just think it's hilarious, unexpected, a full bore. You get a different sort of cruise intensity here. I, I actually included his verbal beatdown of terrorists who are attempting to blackmail him on my top five movie phone calls list. That was way back, <laughs> way back, Adam, episode 391. Oh, you were so. just a pup then. <laughs> yep. We're not going to play that here. I think we had some FCC issues right out of the gate. I got us into trouble with the FCC. Uh-huh. So I don't think we can play that one. Let's go instead with another B rating by video call, this time of the director, played by Steve Coogan, who has let the movie within the movie spiral out of control. Hello, Les. Okay. Hello, okay. Les. We, we, okay. we got you loud and clear here, Les. I see you. I see you. I see you. Which one of you faces is Damien Cockburn? Ah, uh, that's me, sir. Uh, it's good to finally meet you at last. Get some face time. And who here is a key grip? You? You. Hit that director in the face really f- hard. Every time Cruz appears in Tropic Thunder, he's channeling that trademark intensity into this profane comic rage. I mean, you you have to think the guy is exercising something here, getting something out of his system that we're not aware of, whether his experiences as a producer. We know he's very heavily involved in producing most of his films. But yeah, he's getting something out of his system. We just get to watch. We also get to watch the wonderful bonus end credits dancing scene, hmm. which... I, I kind of could just watch on a loop for a while. It makes me happy. <laughs> well, I'm a big fan of Tropic Thunder. Good. And I don't remember disliking Cruz's performance. I brought up my notes for that review while you were talking, and I actually didn't see one mention of Cruz in there. So what? I don't know what that I don't what? know what that means. But obviously it was not a strength of the movie for me. He is, you're right, as I said earlier, one of those actors who I don't necessarily want to see take on a character, which he's definitely playing there, complete with all of the various disguise elements, yeah. but it's just always Tom Cruise playing at something. For me, there's a sense of awareness and a lack of an ability to totally disappear into that character. It just seems like he always knows and he's winking at you while he's doing it. Well, it's 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 but a it's winking fun. movie. It's fun. I mean, every it performance is. of that movie is winking. You're right. Well, this movie doesn't have any winking in it. My number four, the performance is Ron Kovic. The movie is Oliver Stone's Born on the Fourth of July, another movie that we fairly recently did a Sacred Cow review of. I don't actually go in order. We've never talked about this. I don't know what your process is when you're making your notes, but I'd come up with my top five, and then I just kind of dance around and write my notes down for whatever pick strikes me in the moment. I actually have something to say. And in this case, I think I started with three, and then two, and then one, and then I work backwards to four. And I, Yeah, I usually rank them when I'm all done. Like okay. now that I know what I've said. Well, like I usually where move them fall. around yeah, right. after exactly. I end up writing down what I want to say. For me, with Born on the Fourth of July, as I said, I had one through three done. I'd already had this slotted in at four. And then I said, well, I should go back and look at my notes from that review, that show that Matt Zoller Seitz appeared on. And we were talking about his book about Oliver Stone. And we shared our top five Oliver Stone scenes. And I don't want to just repeat what I said there, but I acknowledged during that review right off the bat that this isn't really fair to say because at the time, and it's even true now, I haven't been re-watching a bunch of Tom Cruise movies, and Born on the Fourth of July was, of course, the freshest one in my mind. And 
since I've never totally disliked Tom Cruise in a movie, the one that I've seen most recently is probably going to be one that stands out. And during that review, Josh, I suggested that I would rank Born on the Fourth of July ahead of his performance in Jerry Maguire and two other movies that are going to come up higher on this list. So fine, I'm full of contradictions. But what I said then does hold true insofar as he was the biggest surprise for me on that rewatch of the film. Stone being able to take that presence and that manic kind of energy. And what I argued was he doesn't necessarily try to contain it, but try to channel it. And he does so very effectively. And I drew a comparison to Maverick in Top Gun, where he plays him such a way physically that gives off this attitude that he's above everyone around him and this institution of the Navy. And then you see a character like Ron Kovic, and it's the complete opposite, this sense of admiration, this sense of having a call to service and to sacrifice. And he really embodies that well. And that scene that I love, I think is maybe the most heartbreaking in the film when he says to his father, who's going to love me? And that whole sense of identity that he has is crushed in this film. And then as we see ultimately by the end of the film, reborn or reimagined. And I just think about how many times in that movie you really recognize how broken that character is, how desperate that character is, and I think Cruz captures it. First time I got hit, I was shot in the foot. I could have laid down. I mean, who gives a now if I was a hero or not? I was paralyzed, castrated that day. Why? So, so st- stupid. I have my dick and my balls now, and I think... I think, Timmy, I give everything I believe in, everything I got, all my values, just to have my body back again, just to be whole again. I'm not whole. I never will be, and that's the way it is, isn't it? I'll have a little bit more to say about Bourne on the 4th of July in a bit. But first, you mentioned Maverick. Let's get right to him. I've got Top Gun at my number three. <laughs> I love it. I actually you don't even love this movie. Well, here's what happened. I did not as a kid when I was prime age, maybe a little young, a little young in 86, but certainly saw it around then and should have loved it, but resisted it. I, I think, you know, the whole locker room bravado thing never did much for me as a kid. Just, you know, that sort of culture was not my thing. And so I think I saw but, it in but Top you Gun. But did play shirtless volleyball. <laughs> With other dudes. Yes. Okay. Spent most of my childhood doing that. So really, why didn't I like Top Gun? I revisited it, though, Adam. Just this last year, I was a guest on the Feelin' Film podcast in May, and they suggested we do Top Gun. I've always wanted to give it another look, so I said, why not? And I'm happy I did because I came out liking it a bit more. I'm not going to claim it's any sort of classic, but first, let me say why it's on this list. And, And I think it's because no matter what you feel about the movie... This here is pure Cruz. He's distilled to his grinning, winning essence. I did end up writing a full review on Top Gun for my site, so I'm just going to steal from that here. For most of the movie, the hero worship of Maverick is almost nauseating. It's as if everyone but Val Kilmer's Iceman melts around him. Cruz adopts a smirk that not only fits the character, but is also the look of an actor who knows he's about to become a huge star. The performance would be insufferable if it wasn't so convincing. Cruz slash Maverick believes in himself so completely, we can only assent and shield ourselves from the wattage of his smile. In case some of you wonder who the best is, they're up here on this plaque on the wall. The best driver in his reel from each class has his name on it. And they have the option to come back here to be Top Gun instructors. You think your name's going to be on that plaque? 
Yes, sir. That's pretty arrogant, considering the company you're in. Yes, sir. I like that in the pilot. Remember, when it's over out there, we're all on the same team. So that's why Cruz is on this list. The reason that I like Top Gun a little bit more than I remembered is because I rediscovered how it ultimately pulls the rug out from underneath Maverick mm-hmm. quite a bit in the climax. Oh, here's, sure. Here's what I also found. Amidst all the high fives and motorcycle rides, it's easy to forget that Maverick doesn't win Top Gun. I'd forgotten that. That honor goes to Iceman, who all movie long has been criticizing Maverick for taking unnecessary risks and always thinking of himself first. And in fact, after Maverick's nerves are shaken in a crash, he doesn't regain his confidence until he learns to fly as part of a team. Could Top Gun actually be a portrait of the dark side of American individualism? Maybe even an argument for the value of community, if not exactly communism. It may be hard to see that in the glare of Cruz's toothy grin, but the argument could be made. So I wouldn't go so far as to say Top Gun is subversive, but it subverts Cruz a little bit. Yeah. Right there when he's also at his brightest, and uh, I kind of like that about it. You are still dangerous. You can be my wingman anytime. Oh, you can be mine. Well, I can't wait until his performance in Days of Thunder is your number two because it's basically Top Gun just with race cars. Yeah, and Days of Thunder, I don't think I've ever seen. Maybe because it sort of had that reputation from the start. And I was like, well, if the the original didn't do it for me. (laughs) My number three is a movie that has come up here in some of our poll comments from listeners. And we heard from Jason Eakin with his voicemail. It's from Eyes Wide Shut. Dr. William Harford in that Stanley Kubrick movie. He's a New York City doctor. He's married to Nicole Kidman, who was his wife at the time. She's an art curator. And basically, the whole movie unfolds over one really crazy night where he is set on a bizarre path out in the New York City nightlife, I suppose, after his wife admits that she once thought about cheating on him. And with Cruz, this has come up a few times already, we think of him as this physical actor, the running, the stunt work in those Mission Impossible films. Those aren't talky performances, and in fact, I think they've gotten less and less talky and more physical as the films have gone on, as that franchise has gone on. But there are plenty of his performances that are hyperverbal. Jerry Maguire is one. Rain Man, I would say, is another. A Few Good Men. I think Top Gun, actually, he does... He does use his mouth a lot in that film. He's just as sort of brash with the things he says as he is with the things he does. But even when there isn't heavy dialogue in a cruise performance, he's always driving a scene. All of the action is revolving around him and his actions. And I think that his performance here in Eyes Wide Shut is the one exception or at least one of the primary exceptions because Bill Harford is an observer. The entire film, he is always reacting instead of acting, which is, as I said, a side of Cruz I had never really seen before, certainly not carrying an entire film. That confession that sends him on a tailspin is one where he is listening and watching the entire time, and then he goes out into the world, and everyone, whether it's male or female, and there's a YouTube video that documents this, but everybody wants him. Everybody becomes physically attracted to him. He's always reacting to that. And he gets caught up in these mysterious circumstances well beyond his control. Again, he's this observer. He's a reactive participant. And he's not just reacting, but he's being tested where he constantly has to hold himself back from acting on his desires. So that charisma that we keep talking about, that energy that we keep talking about with Cruz, 
in this performance, it's being repressed the entire film, which actually creates its own kind of energy, mm-hmm. I think. Victor, the woman lying dead in the morgue was the woman at the party. Yes? Well, Victor, maybe I'm missing something here. You called it a fake, a charade. Do you mind telling me what kind of charade ends with somebody turning up dead? Okay, Bill, let's, 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 let's cut the bullshit, all right? A scene there where he's confronting Sidney Pollock about some of the terrible things he saw the night before. It takes him almost 10 seconds just to stand up and deliver the lines you heard there. There is a weariness and a weight to the performance as Bill Harford that I appreciate that to me does stand in contrast to the bulk of his other performances, if not all of them. Yeah, it really is a good counterpoint and uh, didn't make my list, but it was tough to keep off for sure. My number two, we're going to return here to Bourne on the 4th of July. You're right. Our Sacred Cow review is pretty fresh in my mind as well. That was from episode 604. And I think he gives us some of that over intensity in parts of this performance. And I think that may be what got the Oscar attention. There are those screaming matches he has with Caroline Kava as Ron Kovic's mother. I mean, those are big actory scenes. But what really stuck with me are, you mentioned one of these quieter scenes with his father, played by Raymond Barry. I also appreciated another moment, and this is when Kovic is in the Veterans Hospital, and he's already been told he'll never walk again. But he insists on doing the daily physical therapy, and we see him in this scene hanging limply from crutches, lets out a big smile, and declares that he's improving, even though everyone else in the scene and us in the Mm -hmm. audience know that all he's doing is becoming better at dragging his legs. Uh, That combination of physical activity and confidence, I think, is a Tom Cruise moment, if I've ever seen one, but then underlined by this sad reality of Mm. Kovic's situation. Yeah. For my number two, I've got a little bit of listener assistance. This is a voicemail from one of our regulars now, Jeff Milo. Hey, Tom Flatting, it's Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan, and I'm thinking about Tom Cruise for your next show. Uh, I've never really had to meditate on the essence of Tom Cruise before uh, because I've never really been motivated to it because I've always been so half and half with him, um, not really taking him for granted, but also kind of put off by him sometimes. I guess it depended movie to movie or role to role, but uh, I think uh, about the Cruise performances that stick with me, uh, I think they spring from something uh, like just rising to an occasion. If I could make an appraisal on Cruz, it would be that he he really responds to a challenge, I think. I think most uh, of his famous roles and scenes are when he goes toe-to-toe and face-to-face with actors who are generally considered a grade or two above him, uh, Dustin Hoffman, Jack Nicholson, or maybe if he's challenged by you know intense, uh, eccentric, meticulous directors like Oliver Stone, or Stanley Kubrick. Um, so I don't know. That may, that might sound like a backhanded compliment, but when he uh, goes against Nicholson or Max von Sydow or Jason Robards, I think um, like an athlete making that last Hail Mary play, you really see him rise to, to that occasion. Um, the scene that's forever ingrained in my regard for him is his confrontation uh, of his father Robards in Magnolia. Um, I love 
nervous deep breaths he's taking. I love that he's kind of torturously pulled into crying for this man that he hates because he just can't control it. Uh, and that's it. You know, you're wa- you're watching a man lose his control over his hate. I was there. She waited for your call. For you to come. I'm not gonna cry. I'm not gonna cry for you. It is gut-wrenching and heartbreaking and beautiful, and I love it when he rises to those occasions. Great show, guys. Take care. Jeff there, I think, with a really smart take on Cruz overall as a performer and a great choice of Frank T.J. Mackey in Magnolia and that scene in particular, because that's where I'm at with my number two. And we had a few listeners like Jason Eakin earlier and Adam Wells wrote in and said, just look at 1999. Forget a decade. I can pinpoint the year for me where everything changed. It was the year that we got eyes wide shut. And then he's with Paul Thomas Anderson making Magnolia. Now, this is one of those that would qualify as a supporting performance, one of two that is going to make my list here, but the first one that's come up so far. And you alluded to this earlier, Josh, that he is playing one of those hyperverbal, ultra charismatic characters full of that energy as this misogynistic motivational speaker teaching guys how to pick up women. The name of his series is Seduce and Destroy, I believe. And at least according to Wikipedia, Anderson actually, he said that he thought Cruz was drawn to this role because he had just finished making Eyes Wide Shut, where he was playing, as I said, this totally repressed character. And now he got to just let loose and play a character that was outlandish in PTA's words and bigger than life. And those scenes are fun, of course, though also a little bit disturbing. But it's that scene when he confronts his dad, that catharsis scene that really does stand out. There is that physicality to it, again, when you rewatch it, where he enters, and I just love this moment where Cruz puts his hands on his hips and he tilts his head, almost like he's saying, well, what do we have here? This is a nice scam you've pulled off here, old man, getting me to come back. That's what that says to me. But then he's just as quickly back to normal, or what we would think a son would be feeling in that moment. You see the torment he's experiencing. It's in his face, his posture, his entire body, his breathing, as Jeff suggested. This man that he hates, and he hates that he's here, but it's obviously full of a lot of complex emotions. And most of the scene plays out in a long take. There's about two minutes just on Cruz with Robards in the foreground and Philip Seymour Hoffman in the background where we're just looking at Cruz. And he is letting out these feelings that even though Frank T.J. Mackey doesn't hold anything back, He's clearly repressed these emotions and is finally now getting to even let those out with his father who can't talk back to him. And I did see a clip on YouTube from Inside the Actor's Studio, which I remember watching this interview when it came out. But Cruz says there that he hadn't seen his own father in 10 years. And when he first read the script, he had a moment like that with his dad. They had a falling out, hadn't seen him in 10 years, gets a call, your father's dying, goes to talk to him. And his father told him that he'd meet with him as long as they didn't talk about the past at all. Hmm. And he says in that interview with James Lipton that when he read the script, he said to PTA, like, did you know this somehow? Like, how did you know? And he says, no, I just I just wrote the character and I thought you'd be good for it. But I'm not necessarily suggesting that Cruz is really good at tapping into his own personal trauma. I don't know what he's going through there. But 
there's a bit of irony in that all he does in that scene with Robards is talk about the past. He brings up Mm. their entire history in that moment, but he doesn't dwell on it. And the thing that he says to James Lipton that I think is really insightful about his performance style or his approach to acting is he says he's always looking for the spontaneity. He does this extensive research and he'll write these histories like a lot of actors do. So he knows them front and back. But in the moment, he doesn't want to come with that kind of preparation. He wants to just exist in that moment. And you feel it with Frank T.J. Mackey. As I said, you feel it even in just the way he puts his hands on his hips. There's nothing calculated about any of his gestures there. There's one that's even really demonstrative in that moment where he he's kind of holding back letting something out and as if he's clenching his entire body everything about it feels to me anyway like it all happened in that take and we'd never seen it before in that moment now whether or not that's the trick of acting or not doesn't really matter Cruz does convey that there so I'm completely with Jeff and with a lot of our listeners in loving that scene even though I find it hard to watch and loving that performance in Magnolia yeah, Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut are probably fighting for my number six slot. So I, I'm with you on your last two picks. At number one, though, I went with Jerry Maguire, the film that didn't necessarily change my mind on him, but did completely sell me on him. Jeffrey Webb on my Facebook page had a good comment about Jerry Maguire. Too many to choose from, I think. But Rain Man, A Few Good Men, and Magnolia are at the top, along with Jerry Maguire. I give the edge to Maguire, as I feel he has to balance so many lines in that film. Sympathetic slash cocky, dramatic slash comedic, romantic slash aloof. That's all true and well said. What I also like about the performance is that it includes this little speech. Cruz gets a handful of speeches in Jerry Maguire, but I really like this one given to Cuba Gooding Jr., who plays the athlete that Jerry Maguire represents. I think it could stand in for what Cruz has done for movie audiences as a star for over three decades now. I am out here for you. You don't know what it's like to be me out here for you. It is an up at dawn, pride-swallowing siege that I will never fully tell you about, okay? God, help me. Help me, Rod. Help me. Help you. Help me. Help you. Help me. Help you. He's been working hard for us out there for 30-some years now, Adam. <laughs> You've got to appreciate it. Well, a perfect transition into my number one. First, I will say that Jerry Maguire, I had penciled in at number five for a long time, and for me would be number six then, so my first honorable mention. My number one, though, after building up all this goodwill among, I'm guessing, a good chunk of our audience by giving all love and praise to Magnolia at number two, I'm going to undo all of that with a bolder, weirder choice for number one, but I stand by it. My favorite Tom Cruise performance, keyword being favorite, is Vincent Loria in Martin Scorsese's The Color of Money. Hmm. Go it's on. my favorite. It's another supporting performance, though it's much more substantial in terms of running time than Mackey in Magnolia, but he is playing second fiddle to Paul Newman as Fast Eddie Felsen. And yeah, I imagine I'll get a little bit of grief for this, but I find, Josh, that most people have never even actually seen this entire film, or if they did, 
I'm you're raising one of my them. hand. There you go. Or you haven't seen it since it came out, and you probably don't really have much of a perspective on it. Now, if you Google best Tom Cruise movies, and there aren't a lot of lists out there that do retrospectives on his performances like we're doing. I found only one, in fact, that did that, a top 10 list. But a lot of people did back in 2014-15, around the time of the book, Amy's book, they ranked all of his films. And you'll usually find The Color of Money in the late teens to mid-20s, The Ringer, on their list, I'll give them some credit, had it actually at number five. And I'll link to that list in our show notes at filmspotting.net. But as I said, my favorite cruise, I'll never tire of watching him on screen with a t-shirt on that says his name on it, Vince, <laughs> dropping pool shots and dancing to Werewolves of London. So just based on the entertainment value in watching Cruise in The Color of Money, it's my favorite Cruise performance, but I do think it's an appropriate number one, too, because it ties back to some of Amy Nicholson's comments. This notion of respect eluding him. The part that Amy wrote right after the excerpt I read at the start of this segment is this. I have never thought it was as simple as just smiling through a movie, said Cruz. I've had to work extra hard at everything I've done. Cruz dedicates himself completely to his roles. He has taught himself to play pool, fly planes, there you go, drive race cars, flip bottles, and sing. He's dangled from the tallest building in the world, suffered months in a wheelchair, and locked himself away for two claustrophobic years working with the secret of Stanley Kubrick. He even trained underwater to blow a single air bubble out of his nose so Steven Spielberg wouldn't have to add it digitally in post. Explain Cruz, my drive and determination go back to different times as a kid. I had to set goals and force myself to be disciplined because I always felt I had barriers to overcome. The character he's playing here, Vince, makes nine ball look so easy and he has so much fun doing it that it's easy to not fully appreciate just how good he is, which is where this whole topic started for us. The level of talent and the commitment it took to get that good, we just completely take for granted with this character. And there is a need for respect that drives Vincent. He doesn't understand how to play the long game the way Fast Eddie wants, where he can dump games and be a loser only so he can win money. He can be an effective hustler. He just wants to unleash hell because he wants to display that talent and he wants to dominate. And that childish need to get that respect, I suppose, is ironically what actually prevents him, the character, from earning the respect of his girlfriend in the movie and also from Fast Eddie, who we could add as a father figure, I suppose, coming off my Magnolia pick as well. I think of an early scene in this movie where Eddie says to him, you're some piece of work. You're also a natural character. And he says to his girlfriend, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, you see, I've been telling her that. I got natural character. That's not what I said, kid. I said, you are a natural character. You're an incredible flake. But that's a gift. See, guys spend half their lives trying to invent something like that. You walk into a pool room with a go-go-go, the guys will be killing each other trying to get to you. Which, again, seems appropriate for Cruz, right? Where he's been written off mm -hmm. as that type of character, but he is someone who people don't take necessarily as seriously as they should. And Fast Eddie's actually telling him, you need to embrace that. That's your strength. That's going to be a benefit, a gift to you as you embark on your career as a pool player. So that need for respect, the natural overflowing charisma that comes through with the character and the dedication to a craft that comes through in 
what was clearly hours of repetition and practice in order to become that good all do come through in that cruise performance, even though it is one very early in his career. So it's hard to sort of argue it's a culmination of everything Cruz has done. But for me, it does embody that. Got to see it. Yep. Add it to the list of Scorsese's I have to see before I can be a completist on him. But yeah, Paul Newman, Tom Cruise, and Scorsese definitely needs to be on my catch-up list. So I mentioned the Amy Nicholson book. We've talked a lot about her. We might as well hear from her as she did. And her Twitter bio informs us of this. She literally wrote the book on Tom Cruise. We had to ask her, what's her favorite Tom Cruise performance? And anytime we do this, I get a little bit concerned that it's going to be one of the films that's on our list. Maybe it's an overlap. She says Born on the Fourth of July. We've already babbled about that. Or Jerry Maguire. It's not going to add anything that we haven't already heard. The listeners haven't already heard. Well, we did not have to worry about that with Amy Nicholson. Hey, guys. Amy Nicholson here, the author of Tom Cruise, Anatomy of an Actor. So, of course, I wanted to call in with my favorite Tom Cruise performance. Hear me out here. Okay, and I'm saying favorite, not best, but maybe best, but definitely favorite. My favorite Tom Cruise performance is Lestat, an interview with a vampire. And here's why. I don't know how much people remember the outrage when Tom Cruise was cast as Lestat. I mean, if we had had Twitter back then, it would have completely burned down. People were furious. They really wanted Daniel Day-Lewis or really, like, anybody besides Tom Cruise to play Lestat, this, like, fashionable, thin, red-haired European man who just, like, exuded sex appeal. You know, because the thing with Tom Cruise is, even in his movies where he's, like, sexy and romantic, he doesn't get to exude sex appeal. Like, I mean, when you think about him in Magnolia, he doesn't kiss anybody. He doesn't make out with anybody. He just talks a big game. And that's kind of been Cruise's M.O., really. He's not that much of a romantic hero. Anyways, I digress. What I'm getting at is that Tom Cruise was so committed to doing justice to the role of Lestat. He read every single book in Anne Rice's series. He really knew Lestat's biography, not just the stuff that you see in the interview with the vampire and in that script and in that book, but Lestat's whole arc as somebody who loved in the past and lost and had all this fear about the people he loved leaving him behind. And you see Tom Cruise channel this really deep and empathetic knowledge of Lestat into the character. You see when he, you know, plays piano uh, for Kirsten Dunst and the way his eyes light up when he thinks that she's being nice to him and that maybe he can build this family that they never give him a chance to really build. They they see him as this villain pretty much from the get-go. You know, what I find so affecting about that role is that Tom Cruise is almost so good at Lestat that he ruins the movie because... I think Brad Pitt intended to walk into it with just all of the audience's sympathy because Interview with a Vampire is so told from his point of view, from Louis's point of view, that Brad Pitt actually didn't even do any homework. Like, he told interviewers at the time that he picked up Interview with a Vampire, the book, and threw it into the trash. So you're watching this whole movie, watching this mopey, mopey Brad Pitt, expect that audiences are going to side with him, that Lestat's this jerk, but... Tom Cruise's Lestat is just so much more compelling and watchable and wonderful that, to me, the movie falls apart because Tom Cruise is just so good. Now, are you happy, Louis?
dark gift that I gave it to you. So that's my favorite Tom Cruise performance. And you might think I'm crazy, but for real, watch it again. Every little detail he does in that film is magical and that he could pull off that role when nobody thought he could. Interview the Vampire for me all the way. Thank you, Amy, so much for that. We will link to more information about her book in our show notes. And we will also link to an interview she did back in 2015 with Stacey Elaine Dasho called The Rehabilitation of Tom Cruise. That was at theall.com. And I think there's some really good insights there. But Interview with a Vampire is her choice. And of course, it's one of the 11 Cruise movies I haven't seen. I've just never been interested. I've also it's Brad Pitt, isn't it? It's partly Pitt. It's also partly Tom Cruise, the two patron saints for me of don't let them play characters. And they're vampires. Playing characters, playing vampires. But <laughs> no, if, I'm, if I'm hearing Amy, it, it works. Where yeah, I really feel bad, Josh, is that I could have. I could have found time this weekend. It's always so hard for me to find a movie with my wife that she actually wants to watch, a film spotting movie that she actually wants to watch. She totally would have watched Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt play vampires. And I screwed up. You didn't do your homework. You're, no. You're not nearly as dedicated as Tom Cruise. This no, is I'm not, not. This is not an oddball pick for me. I have Interview with a Vampire as an honorable mention for my list. I also had, as I said, Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia. I think Rain Man I gave some consideration. Mm-hmm. We've talked about him possibly giving the better performance than Dustin Hoffman, even though Hoffman's pretty good there. Uh, collateral. Peterson W. Hill on Facebook said, has to be collateral. All the charisma and charm are there, but they are met with the deadness behind the eyes. Accurate. Really like that performance. And then here's one I'll go to bat for that is an oddball. Night and Day, a lark of an action spy flick with Cameron Diaz. Yeah, he's in. That has Larson recommends all over it. He's pretty pure cruise there. She's a lot of fun. Good film, night and day. You like any goofy movie Cameron Diaz is in, don't you? Put her on the road. Would you put her running from killers and you're good? A Life Less Ordinary, are you referring to? Oh, so good. Which I haven't seen night and day, but in comparison, it's probably Citizen Kane. I don't have any honorable mentions that stand out as unique here. I suppose I will say I've always been a fan of some of his early 80s movies, not only Risky Business, his small part in The Outsiders. Love that movie, love that book as a kid. And I've always been a fan of All the Right Moves. So I'll give him some credit there. Now, if you do want to trace the over the top, unhinged, Tom Cruise, you can trace that all the way back to Taps, another movie I saw a bunch as a kid where he has one of the best lines ever as he just unloads on people with a machine gun in a burst of violence. I'm just going to leave it there. I'll, I'll let you I'll let you YouTube it and see if it's yeah. out there. But have not seen Taps. It's Cruise at his unhinged best. Those are our top five Tom Cruise performances. We'd love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Filmspotting.net is where you can also find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, vote in the Film Spotting poll. We're getting an early start on Halloween here asking, what's the best horror movie of the last decade? And if you haven't already, check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show, and Film Spotting SVU. You can find them both in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release this weekend in Transit, a new documentary co-directed by the late Albert Mazels, Victoria and Abdul, with Judy Dench as Queen Victoria, and Woodshock, a haunted young woman spiraling in the wake of profound loss, is torn between her fractured emotional state and the reality-altering effects of a potential cannabinoid drug. Potent cannabinoid. Potent. And is cannabinoid a word? A word? I think Sam made that up. 
Kirsten Dunst stars in that one. It's the featured debut from fashion designers Kate and Laura Molivi. Out in wide release, just what we were all craving. We all needed it. The Flatliners remake with Ellen Page and Diego Luna. Till Death Do Us Part, a Sleeping with the Enemy remake with Tay Diggs. And American Made, a movie we discussed earlier in the show and we recommend. And not a remake? And not wasn't as far there, as we know a remake. Wait, isn't there like a, a Mel Gibson like pilot? Uh, something's coming to yes, me. Yes, with Robert Downey Jr. and they fly helicopters into some... Maybe this is a remake it's of that. Vietnam, no. Oh. It's Vietnam. So, okay. nice try, Josh. Next week on the show, Blade Runner 2049. It'll be reckoned with all 160 plus minutes of it. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogeren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thank him for finding a lot of those cruise clips you heard this week. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you like this show, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way, we can reach some new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Air America is the answer, Josh. Thanks for listening. Air America. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.